Well, I hope that you are as full spiritually as perhaps you have been physically the last three days, or at least you're getting as full. It's good seeing you this morning and love hearing you give praise to God. We are in a series on union with Christ. We're using Ephesians chapter 1 primarily as the launching point for this series, although we'll be kind of marching through at least the first three chapters, looking at all the instances in which we are said to be in Christ, these blessings we have, and they're laid out for us in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I thought I'd bring you just a small illustration of these, of these verses, if I could. I've mentioned this before, but never brought the actual object. But union with Christ, as seen in Ephesians chapter 1, really is like a necklace, And often when we're looking at theology and doctrine and we're gazing at the wonders of our great God, we tend to notice the the jewels, the beautiful pendants or diamonds or whatever's hanging from the necklace, right? And we've done that so far in Ephesians 1 for several weeks. We've seen election, predestination, being faithful in Christ, these blessings that are ours in Christ. But union with Christ is not one of these pendants. Remember, union with Christ is the actual necklace on which they all hang. So if you didn't have union with Christ, you wouldn't have the pendant of election, predestination. Uh, And we'll see inheritance. We'll see redemption today. These these different beautiful truths that we enjoy, these blessings, if, if it weren't for this necklace which really doesn't get much attention, does it? No one says, hey, that's a nice necklace. They don't really mean the thing around your neck, the chain. They're probably meaning what's hanging from it usually, right? And that's kind of the case with this doctrine. You don't hear much about union with Christ. It's kind of this hidden underneath doctrine that really is beautiful. It's it's gorgeous. We love it. But we tend to focus really on what hangs from it. Redemption our inheritance, being sealed by the Spirit. But none of that's possible if it weren't for the chain that holds them all together, and that's union with Christ. So I hope that kind of helps you get a picture a little bit about what we're looking at in this doctrine, especially explicitly taught in Ephesians. So with that in mind, let's turn once again to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's fill ourselves up with the Word of God, and we're praying the Spirit of God will continue to just mold us into the image of the Son of God by the Word of God. We're going to be noticing especially verses 7 to 9 today and the blessing of being redeemed in Christ. So let's begin to read verses 7 to 9. I'll read. You follow along with me. Here's what these verses say to us in Ephesians 1, coming off the heels of 3 to 6, these blessings that are ours in Christ, primarily these first, you could say the first one, you could say the first two, I'll let you decide how you see it, but being chosen in Christ, predestined in Christ, he now says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Notice that, in him we have this. So in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. 
Now, we're stopping in the middle of a sentence, I realize that, but there's more to be said in verse 10 for a later week. So let's just tackle this part of the buffet first, can we? This part about being redeemed in Christ. Notice, beginning of verse 7, in Him. You see that? End of verse 9, in Christ. So again, here's these two bookends. He's establishing clearly this is because we're in Christ. This is because of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice, first of all, the declaration that he makes. Here in verse 7, he states very clearly, in him we have redemption through his blood. And you'll notice that this is the first time we are said explicitly to have something. You see the words we have? First time those words are mentioned in these verses. Up to this point, it's, it's just what God has done. He's chosen, he's predestined, he's blessed. And this is not saying that we've done something, but it is saying we've now received something. And I like to look at it like this. This is kind of the, the return on investment of election and predestination. We're left now standing in front of God, holy and blameless as an adopted child. And what do we hold in our hands? We hold this gift of redemption. It's a possession. We have it. I love those words. In him, we have, we possess redemption through his blood. Now, by definition, the word redemption simply means to obtain release by the payment of a price. It means to purchase something and set that person free from their previous owner. In a spiritual sense, we know we've been set free from sin by the payment of a price by Christ to God. We believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Here he talks about redemption through his blood, pointing in the same direction as those two things. And so it's, it's speaking of a spiritual release and eventually a physical release, by the way, from sin by the payment of a price. And so you have to realize that the phrase through his blood is vitally and critically important. There's no redemption without it. And so the declaration is this, we have something because of Christ's blood. And what is that? It's redemption. And this is a, a New Testament doctrine, but it has its roots in Old Testament illustrations. And the greatest one, of course, is Exodus and the redemption of God's people Israel from Egypt. They were enslaved there 400 plus years God heard their cries and their prayers and sent Moses to deliver them. And so he physically delivered them from Egypt. Watch this, not only through a series of plagues, but also through the shedding of the blood of a lamb, which then they would apply to their home. The death angel would pass over that, and then they were to go free, and they did. And they left Egypt. They were released from their bondage. And then they lived unto God. Now, they had some stumbles and hurdles along the way. Can we say amen to that, right? 40 years in the wilderness, a number of kings who went rogue. But God redeemed them in that moment by his power and through blood. So it's a picture of what Christ would ultimately do for God's people. Not just Israel, but all of God's people then, both Jew and Gentile. When Christ shed his blood, he bought us out of sin purchased our freedom from sin, both spiritually and ultimately physically from the presence and power of sin. And he, he paid that price to God. And so now we're redeemed. We're set free. We've been purchased out of sin's slave market, so to speak. 
This is what Paul here is referring to. The release of God's people by the payment of a price. That's redemption. An Old Testament kind of um, concept, New Testament doctrine. If, If you were to ask me, Todd, how would you describe redemption that we have in one word? I would give you the word, we're freed. We're freed by Christ. Peter kind of uh, uses both Old and New Testament elements in his understanding of redemption. Let me just read these verses over you. This is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Hear this. You were ransomed, or the word there is redeemed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so here's Peter affirming, echoing Paul's thoughts. Again, redemption. We're released by the payment of a price, and it's Christ's blood. This is the declaration he's making. That because of God's choosing and God's ordaining, because of God's sovereign right to call sinners to be his sons and daughters, we now have redemption as our possession. Here's what's so intriguing is when we are redeemed, we become his possession. So it's kind of this mutual possession thing going on. We have a possession called redemption, but we now are a possession unto God. Now, that declaration is wonderful. We love it. It's it's a statement of fact to believers who have trusted in Christ. We have redemption in Christ. But what's even more beautiful and delicious about this part of the buffet is how he now describes redemption. So notice the last part of 7 and through 9, his description of redemption. Here he answers really three questions. He answers the what, the how, and the why. And this will make your heart just explode, I hope. Notice, first of all, how he further describes redemption. He says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So forgiveness means to carry something away. And here, what is being carried away? All the times that you've crossed the line. All the times that you and I have violated the boundaries. That's what a trespass indicates. Here's the line, don't cross it. But we've crossed the line. We've violated the boundaries. We've extended our, uh, you know, we've gone beyond what God said. What does Romans say? All have sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. There's not a single one of us who are righteous. We've all got trespasses. Many moments we cross the line. But what, God, what has God done in Christ? For all who believe in him, he has carried those moments away. Now, again, this is speaking and probably hearkening back to an Old Testament concept that annually the children of Israel would gather on the Day of Atonement and then would not only sacrifice an animal and shed its blood for the, uh, for the redemption of their sins, so to speak, or the atonement of their sins for that year, but they would also take an animal, lay their hands on its head, and then they would send this goat out into the wilderness, he was called the scapegoat. And symbolically, it, it kind of symbolized letting this goat take all the sins of the nation and, and carry them away. It symbolized forgiveness. So I think Paul here is saying, yeah, when, when Christ came as our redeemer and shed his blood to pay the price for our release, it was God sending our sins into the wilderness. They're being carried away. They're forgotten. He remembers them no more. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So that's actually what redemption is. How do we get redemption or 
forgiveness or this carrying away of all the times that we've crossed the line with God? How does that occur? It says here, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, Paul here uh, gets very superlative in his language, doesn't he? He just keeps getting higher and higher. Our elders were looking at this Tuesday morning and we just were overwhelmed with all the superlatives and the way he just continues to kind of unfold this and show us jewel after jewel of this thing we know as redemption. He says it's based upon the riches of his grace. So it's not based on what you bring to the table. You don't write a check. Remember, Peter said it's not purchased with silver or gold. It's not something you buy. You don't earn this. It's based on the wealth of God. And how important it is because if you were to depend on your wealth to buy forgiveness or redemption, let's just be honest, we're bankrupt. We, we can't afford it. You can't purchase it. And so it's based or is in keeping with the riches of his grace, his gift, his unmerited favor. And watch this. He lavished this on us. So God's got all this wealth of grace. He sees all of our bankrupt, bankrupt status, all the times we've crossed the lines of his boundaries, all the moments we've gone beyond, we've sinned. And God in all of his forgiveness just pours this out on us. I don't mean he drips it on us. He lavishly drenches us with his grace. His mercy is more. He lavishes on us. And then watch this. I, I love this. He doesn't just lavish his grace upon us only. He does it in a way that has wisdom and insight. Now, maybe this is the way he lavishes grace on us in all of his wisdom and insight. Maybe it's also speaking of what we get in addition to grace. We get his wisdom and insight. Take your pick. But God isn't just pouring out grace in a lavish fashion like uh, without thought. Like, oh, I just didn't mean to pour that much or oh, I should have poured more there. There's wisdom behind God's wealth. I love the way this says that he's, this is how he does it. He does it wisely. He does it wealthily. And God's forgiveness, this redemption we have in Christ is a beautiful, cherished gift, isn't it? Now, why would God do that? Why would God lavishly drench us and wisely drench us with all this grace that's greater than all of our sin? Why would he offer this redemption, this forgiveness? Notice the last phrase now in verse 9. Or actually, all of verse 9. This was to make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. What he's describing here is that, that redemption really is this culminating moment in which the plan of God becomes fully open. Do you recall the Old Testament? There was a promised Messiah, one who would come who would take away the sin of the world. He would bear their sins. He would take their place, but they had to wait. And so there's this kind of sense of a mystery. It's called that in the, in the New Testament. And yet it wasn't like God was trying to hide something. Don't think mystery in the sense like, well, this is playing hide and seek. No, it's just something that's revealed progressively. And through the Old Testament, it's kind of referred to as a mystery. The most theological way to describe this word is the word open secret. It's kind of a paradoxical 
use of words there, but it means open secret, which means God's doing something in the open, but it takes time to reveal. And when Christ came, he was making known the fulfillment of all of his open secret, this mystery. It was no longer now a, a mystery. It's available. It's here. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of it. And so God, when he sent Christ in his life, and especially the moment of his death, was making known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, this is what he was up to all along. That's why you see the word purpose at the end of verse 9. According to or based on his purpose, his plan all along was to send Christ to redeem sinners. And so when he set Christ forth, this is what you would have heard. Oh, now we see. That's kind of the sense you'd get in the, if, if you were to have all the people kind of gathered and looking, oh, aha, now we get it. Christ was what God was doing all along. He's the Messiah. Our forgiveness is found in him. This is what God has been up to. He proved this when he set Christ forth and Christ died, shedding his blood, providing redemption and forgiveness for all who would believe. This is what we have in Christ. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, how can one man stand in for every other man or woman? How, can, how, can, how does that equation work for all those in the past and the future? Like, can you explain that? Well, that's a very good question. Perhaps let me illustrate the answer through the life of David Livingston, who was a missionary to Africa. When he arrived there uh, years ago, he, um, they asked him the same thing. How is it that one man can take the place of so many and then offer forgiveness? They never heard the gospel, and this is amazing news to them. He, he had with him two coins. He had an old British copper coin worth very little, and then he had a a actual gold sterling coin. He pulled both out and he said, look at these coins. And the gold sterling was worth 240 times more than the copper one, but it was much smaller. And he said, the difference in these two coins is in the metal. It's intrinsic. It's inherent to the coin. He said, the reason that the smaller one is worth more is because of what it's made of. And he said, that's how redemption works, he told the Africans. He said, because Christ is not like you and me in the sense that he's holy, he's God in the flesh. He is like us in that he's man, but he does not have a sin nature. And so he is intrinsically, inherently different in that way. And so he can take the place, pay the price, obtain the release. He stands in for all of us. Because in one sense, he is one of us, like us. In another sense, he's not like us. He's inherently different than all of us. While at the same time, being like us. It's the hypostatic union. It's two natures in one. And he explained that to them. He said, this is because Christ, what he is and who he is, is different. He's holy. He's righteous. And so when he shed his blood, when he gave his life, when he died for you, it was different than just another good person dying. It was the holy son of God dying to pay the price for your release. And because he's holy and eternal and righteous, it pays the price eternally. Hebrews would have called this redemption an eternal redemption. And of course, now we know that explanation was fitting because David Livingston was a, was a fabulous missionary, brought the gospel to many parts of Africa. Thousands believed. 
and received redemption. This is his declaration and description. In a word, keep this in mind, church, redemption is the plan and purpose of God to purchase freedom for sinners. And this plan and purpose was put on display in the person of Christ. And this makes them his possession, but it also gives them a possession. And that possession is forgiveness, redemption. So let me see if I can kind of tie everything we've said so far to last week and the week before and give you kind of a single sentence that might bring the first nine verses into some sort of a, somewhat of a summary. Can I do that with you? A bit of a challenge here, but I think I, 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 I can help you here. Notice the simple sentence that I think will help us grasp redemption, but also how it ties to election and predestination. The first nine verses of Ephesians 1. Here's our take-home truth today. Just kind of log this, would you? My standing as a spiritually adopted, holy and blameless son or daughter. And here's your standing. You're free from sin. Amen, church? That's your standing. Holy, blameless, you've been bought with a price, you're free. That standing came at a great price. It is a purchased position and possession. That's election, predestination, redemption, all tied in together and showing us how God has worked on behalf of his people in his son. This makes me think of Acts 20, 28, a, a fabulous verse that I hope as a church you'll just kind of lock your arms around. When Paul tells the Ephesian elders, he says this, that the church, that, that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. He was in essence saying to those Ephesian elders, you're a redeemed people. Christ obtained your release through the payment of his own blood. And now you're his people. You're holy, you're blameless, you're standing free from sin. But it was not a, a cheap uh, 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 purchase. This was a costly, expensive redemption. It was the blood of Christ. And it was eternally sufficient to make us adopted, holy, and blameless before God. This is why redemption is such a beautiful possession that we have. Amen, church? Now, as that's kind of circling in your mind, as you're ruminating on that and meditating on that and rejoicing in that, I want to bring to you two what I call activating implications. In other words, there's two things that should happen in your life from the doctrine of redemption, from the truth of redemption in this text. Here's the first one. Here's the first implication, and you'll, I think you'll understand the action that should come from this. But the first implication is this. Redemption is incremental. I referenced this a little bit in the idea of the mystery, that there was an Old Testament plan in place, but it was, uh, I wouldn't use the word veiled in a negative sense, but it was somewhat hidden. It was progressive, and then it was revealed fully, ultimately, in Christ and so God's plan is kind of unfolded in that fashion. And so we say redemption is incremental. I say it like this, that redemption happens over a period of time, and yet it is an act that occurred at a point in time. Did you catch that? It is something that happens over a period of time, 
but it's an action that occurred at a point in time. Let me give you some scriptures to back this up, okay? I'm not just making this up or just coming to you with some thoughts on my own. I want to show you how scripture shows redemption to be incremental and why this matters. In Romans chapter 3, the Bible says that, that God, watch this phrase now, that God overlooked sins of the past. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't count them as against people or that he just kind of said, you know what, I'll just slide those under the rug. That's not what God did. He's saying that he kind of held those in this category of, of yes, they're, they're atoned for annually, but they're not really eternally forgiven until Christ comes. And then when Christ died, he applied that to all these sins of the past, just as he applies now all the sins of the future. Because when you were born, all your sins were still future concerning uh, in regards to Christ's death, right? But the cross still applies. So it reaches forward and it reaches back. The power of God's redemptive uh, work in Christ at the cross. And so we see that in one sense, that's an incremental understanding of redemption. When Christ died, it reached back and took care of all those sins. It reaches forward and takes care of all who will still yet to believe has an incremental effect, kind of a progressive action, yet it occurred at a point in time. Also in Romans chapter 8, we're told that we are, watch this now, we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So there's some aspect of redemption that's still to occur. It's the physical aspect in which we'll be delivered from sin's presence. You see, we've been delivered from sin's penalty. Hallelujah, church. Amen. We are no longer condemned. But man, we still fight with its presence, don't we? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, Satan and his network of demons, his hierarchy of evil. And we still have to deal with that in this world. But there's a day coming when our bodies will be redeemed, the coming of Christ, and we'll gain an incorruptible body. And we won't struggle with lusts or fleshly appetites. The, the pressure and, and temptation of the society and world and the culture That'll be a great day. So we're waiting for that. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8 that our body joins creation and we groan as we wait for that day. Could somebody say amen there? You just sometimes feel like your heart aches for the longing, uh, aches for the coming of Christ. What did Paul say at one point? Who will deliver me from this body of death? So redemption has, a, has like an incremental aspect there. We know we've been redeemed, and yet we're still waiting for an aspect of it in the redemption of our bodies. Do you know that the, the second coming of Christ is also called the day of redemption in Ephesians 4.30? When Paul said, looking, uh, thinking about the day of redemption. So that's a future aspect. And watch this. When Jesus Christ was warning his disciples about the end times, he said, when things get extremely difficult, this is Luke 21, he said, and, and, and you think it's, uh, you know, a lost cause. He said, lift up your heads for your redemption draws near. So we just have to admit that theologically, biblically, redemption occurred at a point in time. Yes, Christ was revealed. He died. It was the ultimate fulfillment of all God had promised. It was the making known of the mystery. The secret was now open, so to speak. And yet there are aspects to it that are incremental. It's very similar to how we talk about salvation. The Bible is explicit that salvation has occurred, is occurring, and will occur. Did you know that? We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It's called the tenses of salvation. And I think the same thing is true for redemption. There are tenses of redemption. Now, as I, as I walk you through that, you say, Todd, what do you want me to do with that then? This is an activating implication. 
What am I to do? I just want you to worship God in all of his greatness, that, that he can actually in some way hold sins in a certain place and while atoning for them, when Christ dies, forgive them eternally. I don't know how he does that. But Romans 3 describes that. And yet he can also then take this incredible, eternal redemption and apply it to all who would believe in the future. That's amazing. The power of this apex of history, the central focus of all of our doctrine, theology, belief, the cross of Christ is amazingly powerful in our life. And so when you start thinking about that and then other things from the last two weeks, how does God before the foundation of the world actually choose a people unto himself? How does he mark out predestined, a plan to redeem sinners and make them his sons? These are all things that, are, that, that make you spiritually dizzy. They're confounding. They are bewildering. I say it like this often to our family. I say, you know, there are, there are moments you get confused on purpose. You look at the Bible and you read these incredible doctrines and you're like, I'm, I'm lost. I, I don't get this. That's actually a good place to be and it should be the place of worship for us as we read through this section of scripture. We should realize, wow, God has done incredible things that I don't really fully understand, but I'm so glad he's done them. Here's what you don't want to do. Don't try to use your finite mind to be the final framework for how God works. If you try to use your mind as the filter, and say, okay, God, I'm reading all these things, but I don't quite get it. So if I don't get it, I must not be true. It's got to all fit and make sense to me. And if you narrow and winnow God down to where it only, he only fits in your framework to where your filter is the only one that really accounts for how to understand him, here's what you end up with. A God that looks a lot like you and me, and that's no God at all. I'm not saying God can't be knowable, but I'm saying there are aspects of God that we don't understand. And if you think you have to get it all perfectly and have to make sense to you for it to actually be true, man, that's the kind of doubt that ultimately leads to denial. And I've seen it happen with friends with my own eyes because they can't explain it perfectly or get it in their finite mind. They must think, well, God's not infinite. And they have doubts they won't deal with, and it leads to denial. And I'm encouraging you as your pastor, don't go down that road. Don't think God has to fit in your fleshly, finite framework. He's infinitely more powerful and greater than you could ever imagine. So fall on Scripture and trust God. Man, let Romans 11 get under your feet. How unsearchable are his ways. They're beyond finding out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? This is Paul exclaiming his worship in light of such incredible truths that we love and appreciate and somewhat understand, but realize I don't quite get it all. So I'm calling on you, church. I'm calling on you pastorally on behalf of our elders don't deny doctrine just because you don't quite get it all. Your framework is not the final filter. Worship God instead. That he's actually God. Bigger, greater, more majestic, infinitely wiser than you and I will ever be. And rejoice in that and enjoy his lavished grace upon us. 
his redemption, his forgiveness. As I think about the incrementalness of redemption, it reminds me of a story about a Christian businesswoman who was riding the bus home after work. And she was humming the song, I've Been Redeemed. And the next passenger got on, it was a lady, and she sat down beside her. And she began humming with her. And so the first lady kind of grinned and looked at her, and the second lady grinned back. And so in response, the first lady said, so you've been redeemed. Second lady says, I have. And they kind of hummed along a little bit. First lady says, well, so uh, when were you redeemed? Keeping the conversation going. Well, the second lady says, about 1,900 years ago. And the first lady thought, oh, I didn't word my question well. Maybe she didn't understand. And so she just repeats the answer back. She says, 1,900 years ago. And the second lady says, yes, but I didn't know it until about a year ago. <laughs> Can we just admit, I don't quite get how that works. There's so much depth to what God's doing. But don't deny it. Just enjoy it. The lavish grace that he's pouring out on you. That he has poured out on you and that he will pour out on you. Here's the second activating implication. So the first one is that redemption is incremental and it should cause us to worship. Because it leaves us knowing. We just don't have all this figured out. But we love it and we're enjoying it. God is awesome. Here's the second activating implication. Redemption is proclamational. If the first implication was kind of brought to our attention through the idea of a mystery, the second was brought to our attention by the words made known. So God's actually declaring and making something known. He's going public with something. What is it? That there is now a redeemer. He has come. He has died. He has purchased freedom for sinners. God's proclaiming something. In other words, redemption is very missional-minded. And in fact, I would say to you, God isn't just making a proclamation to us. He's asking his family to join with him in this proclamation. 2 Corinthians 5.20 is an interesting verse. It's very weighty for pastors especially and for believers. But notice this verse. Paul said, we are ambassadors for God as if, as if God were making his appeal through us. And then here's the appeal. Be reconciled to God. So there's this sense that, that what God's proclaiming in Christ He's now asking all of his family to make this same appeal as if it were God making it. And what's the appeal? Be reconciled to God. Christ has come. He's purchased your freedom. You don't have to be at war with God. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are on a proclamational mission with God. Yeah, he's the author of it. He's the initiator. He's the, the proclaimer, no doubt the ultimate one. But he's asked us to join him. He's made something known, and he wants us to make it known with him. So redemption's proclamational. Now, in light of that, let me say some things to you that were very shoe leatherish. They'll meet you right where you live. I'll start by saying this to you, that here at First Sunday Church, we kind of swim in three streams. What we call FFC, FFE, and FFG. First Family Church, First Family Extended, and First Family Global. Each of those is aimed at just proclaiming that Christ is our Savior, that redemption has been provided. There are three things we do, especially within FSC, the core of this kind of sphere of influence or this concentric circle. There are three things that we do. Celebrate, grow, and serve. 
Now listen very carefully. Celebrating the gospel is the fuel for our weekly activities and our community in which we grow. It's kind of the accountability factor for all of those habits. But everything we do at FFC leans against the wall of serving the mission. Everything we do. It doesn't mean that we're fueled by it. We're fueled by the gospel. Worship fuels mission. And we're held accountable to it by our brothers and sisters. That's what the church is. We're on mission. Christ's last words, our first concerns, we're going to see that we're up to that, after that. But let's make no mistake. We are serving the mission of God to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them. There are no other missions. We don't have an option. We don't have secondary things. We don't have other. This is what we do. Now, admittedly, we do that in a variety of ways, correct? Children's ministries, youth ministries, there are missions ministries, small groups, there's women's, there's men's. There's, you can think of a host of ways. We're benevolence, we, we feed people, we're working in different kind of uh, environments. Yes, but all of those are leaned against the wall of the mission of God. And I'd remind you again this week, as I have multiple times, God did not give his church a mission. God gave his mission a church. We're to be about his business. And his mission is a redemptive mission. He has made something known. What is it? That Christ has come and redeemed sinners from the slave market of sin. He's paid the price for all who would believe. So what is our proclamation? What is our mission to make sure this news gets out? So everything we do, every ladder we climb, leans against that wall. That means we preach to this end. We sing to this end. We give to this end. We program to this end. We plant churches to this end. We send partners to this end. We ask you to lead small groups to this end. We hold youth ministry to this end. We engage in children's ministry to this end. Everything we do is aimed at the mission of God. So while we may have a number of, we'll call them secondary, I guess you could say, or maybe minor ministries, we really have one uh, mission as a church. And that is to proclaim with God that Christ is the Redeemer. Let me see if I can give you a number to help you understand why this matters so much. 154,937. That's the number of people who die every day without Christ. Two per second. So every second, two people are dying without Christ around the globe. This is why it matters that the church be on mission. Again, I want to reiterate, there are a variety of ways to go about this. A number of perhaps we'll call them doors. But every single door must lead to the main living room, so to speak, of the mission of God. Every ladder must lean against the wall of the mission of God. Because 154,937 people every day are dying without Christ. Steve Camp would say years ago, the church is playing marbles while hell is burning. Steve Camp's an old uh, gut puncher kind of songwriter. If you're over 40, you probably have heard of him. 
And so one of my grave and I would say most precious responsibilities is to do all I can to keep our church and to keep our, and I say our church, our people aimed at the mission that matters. The mission of God. And to support and to ignite and to initiate and and together mobilize in different ways to meet needs, yes, but those have to be aimed at the making of disciples of all nations. Because 154,937 people need to hear that there is a Redeemer. He has come, and His name is Jesus Christ. Now, let me see if I can give you a couple ways to put this into practice. Again, real shoe leathery here, okay? In light of this mission being proclamational, the amount of folks who need to hear this message, that God's asking us to join Him in this message, Here's two things you can do. And I'm speaking to folks who've been here a while or maybe some new folks who've just kind of started coming to First Family. We had a lot of new folks in the last few weeks and months. Some are still watching online. Some are upstairs. Some are here. One of the, 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 some of the best steps you can take initially are just to begin to pray and to begin to give. Now, you can go to membership class, go to discovery class, get into a small group. Those are great avenues. But I tend to think you'll feel most invested when you invest time in praying and time in giving. It's one of the best first steps you can take to say, I feel part of that church. When you begin to give your resources to help its mission, and when you begin to give your time in praying for its mission. Now, to help you with that, when you leave today, you'll be given an eight-day prayer guide for mission spots around the globe. This is in combination with our 40 days of prayer and fasting. I don't think we can get too much prayer, by the way. So you're still going to get your jumpstart prayer, but I want you to take this prayer, guide home, and use it each day. To, on day one, I'll walk you through a place to pray for and some of our partners there. This is specifically by the International Mission Board. We give substantially to them each year. And so um, about 3,500 missionaries are supported through the IMB. So take the guide with you and just follow it for the next eight days. Uh, you'll also get in your Jumpstart prayer a, a little reminder about this. There'll be a sentence added that will describe today's focus in the, in the week of prayer for international mission. So Just kind of take this and just begin to pray for specific places where God's redemptive message is going and needs to go and for the places where it's not yet been. And have God mold your heart. Have God mold your heart to be like his for the nations. Have him lift your eyes outside of just your own row or just your own home to the fields that are white to harvest because redemption is proclamational. It demands that we jump on board the mission of God with our time and pray for those who've yet to hear. Pray for God to send more labors into the field. It also demands that we just give of our resources. So I want to encourage you to continue to give to and through your church. What you're going to read about in the next eight days, we give substantially to help the International Mission Board. And we are humbled and pleased to. It's not the only thing we do. It's one of the things we do. We're so thankful for your generosity. In fact, I'll just tell you this. If you're wondering, well, is our money used well at First Family? It goes to the mission in substantial ways. In fact, the next year, the largest increase of our budget is in missions. I hope that fact alone will tell you a lot about the DNA of this church. We desire for God's message to get where it's not been yet. To continue to go in places where it is but needs greater footing. We want to be part of that. So here's what I'm saying to you. Can can you just take the prayer guide and then can you think about it? Am I giving to and through our church? 
Because those are at least two things you can do to be part of the mission of God. I think there's more we can do. We want to share with our mouth. We want to witness. We want to be verbal. We want to go on trips. Yes. But my, my understanding is this, that, that most of those things, they follow your time and your money. And if you've been visiting here, checking us out, or you've been here for years, and you've really never invested with your time in prayer for missions and your money for missions, I would say make those two steps by faith and watch God, God turn your heart to be more like his for the nations who've yet to hear. Who've yet to hear of the redemption that's in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. So I hope what's happened this morning is that you've had a, a fire, a redemptive fire lit in your heart. Like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know this was the possession we have. Like, we have this in Christ, and it's, it's uh, incremental, so it, it's, it's so vast and deep that I can hardly get my hands around it, and it's proclamation. Yes, I want to be part of this. I want to join God in his redemptive mission. Man, that'd be awesome. That'd be growth. And so to help kind of that fire stay lit, to pour more fuel in that fire, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I want you to stand. And we're going to read some final verses. And we're going to sing one song and we'll leave. Here's six or seven verses about redemption that will just drive home further the incredible, beautiful truth of these verses. I'm going to join you down on the floor. I want to ask you, church, if you would, I'll read the verses. Will you just say loudly and passionately the word redeem when it comes up, okay? Here's the first one. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel... I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord who has created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, 1 Corinthians, listen to this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Hallelujah. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.